1: Questions and hopefully answers tonight. Charles Marshall here, in for Neil Garfield. And this is Thursday, February 23rd, 2017. Good afternoon for those in the western time zones, and good evening to those in the east. Bill Padalo joins us tonight with some fresh insights on his continuing investigative path to discovering the whole truth about the mortgage mess. Welcome, Bill.
2: Hi, Charles. Thanks thanks uh, for having me again on the
1: show. Yes, always great to have you on the show. And I am broadcasting live from San Diego, California, and we are brought to you by the Living Lies blog, GTC Honors, Lending Lies, Amgar, and the Garfield Firm, with offices in South Florida. Now, this this show is especially brought to you because of donations to the Living Lies blog from listeners like you. Thank you. And for those of you who are not contributors, we ask that you hit the Donate button on the blog or call area code 202-838-6345, and that's our main number, and pledge whatever you think you can afford. If this show has value for you, then please make a contribution to help us continue helping you and all consumers. Now, Bill, we're going to be talking tonight about NGIC. That's the Mortgage Guarantee Insurance Corporation. And interestingly enough, for such an important organization, which you know, for the listeners out there, Bill will be able to to give you the intel on that shortly. They operate out of a P.O. box in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So now for some backstory, which is important for listeners to understand, you know, what MGIC is doing and what kind of violations they're really involved with here. The backstory is that when you bring a property to sale, and, you know, this is true whether you're in a non-judicial or a judicial foreclosure state, by the way, And for those of you who listen to this show, you know we do discuss non-judicial foreclosure issues a lot. But this is actually coming from a judicial foreclosure case, which Bill will be talking to you about shortly. Um, So the bona fides that an institutional lender slash securitized trust bring to a foreclosure sale and the bona fides that they're supposed to have before directing a foreclosure sale are that they're supposed to show that basically they are the true lender or they have received the entire beneficial interest, meaning the note and the associated deed of trust, and that basically they are, at the time that they direct a foreclosure sale, the actual legal owner of the note and deed of trust. I mean, otherwise they could be some guy down the street directing a foreclosure sale. Those bona fides are very important. That's why in places like California, and I know this happens elsewhere as well, you you won't see a servicer bring an unlawful detainer case in many cases, or you won't see a servicer go into bankruptcy court and file a motion for relief of stay. What you'll see in many cases is a U.S. bank securitized trust, a Bank of New York Mellon securitized trust, a Deutsche Bank securitized trust, they're the supposed party in interest. They're the supposed beneficiary. And when Bill discusses this, he's going to be able to explain why this is even more outside of of the normal uh, assignment problems and in all these cases where the, the the real beneficiary, the real party in interest, just isn't there, it's even more so in these cases. Hence the term contrived complexity. MGIC, MG, MGIC is a master at contrived complexity. So, Bill, if you could, if you could get into the details of this and tell these, t- tell our listeners just how <clears throat> contrived this situation is. Sure, I'd, I'd be happy
2: to. And uh, you know, this is kind of a, a fun case uh, to be honest with you because the number one question that most folks ask when they come to me is um, are you ever able to put your finger on um, who the insurance carrier uh, or whomever the insurance party is on the default swaps or whatnot that paid off my loan or paid off the debt within the trust and that's typically a very rare and difficult uh, proposition to, uh, you know, actually come up with the name. I mean, I can see the data often that these things are paid off or whatnot and by insurance, but I, but naming the party is very difficult. Well, here is a case that um, it I was basically able to uncover uh, all of this information in a nice, nice, tidy package, and and it's just literally a treasure trove of information as to the uh, underworkings by these parties behind the scenes that uh, much of what they detail is uh, you know is exactly what we've Uh, suspected all along and have been accusing of these parties of all along but here it's just uh, it's beautiful because it's all just laid out and written for for the whole world to see so anyhow I was called into uh, this case obviously um, it's in Washington state which is a non-judicial state usually Uh, this is uh, a, a particular case was a judicial filing and I was called in fairly late in the game because the uh, the defendant certainly smelled something fishy going on. And, and, uh, so when I got the case, um, I I started from the top and when I looked at the name of the plaintiff in the action, and this is a 2013 case is when it was filed. Uh, I noticed that the name trustee, uh, was the bank of New York is trustee. Well, right there, uh, that that was a red flag because that particular entity, as most uh, listeners are probably aware, merged out of existence in 2007 when it uh, merged with Bank of New York Mellon. Uh, so I started from that point and started to research this particular trust, which happens to be a Structured Asset Securities Corp. Trust, and the acronym is SASCO. So it's an older series trust. It's a 2002 vintage trust. Uh, which I started to uh, delve into. And lo and behold, uh, I find out through my internal data and and through the SEC filings and whatnot that this particular trust was terminated years before the filing of the complaint, whereby all the loans within the trust uh, were entirely paid off. And so when I started to dig into uh, what happened there, um, I came upon this... Magic Mortgage Guarantee Insurance Corporation master insurance policy that uh, happened to be filed uh, deep within the uh, inner workings of the SEC filings for this particular trust, and it was from there that I just you know my eyeballs started going up like holy cow. There, as you read through this, you you see that, uh, and it's also I mean a lot of information here that pretty much confirms what neil's been touting what we've all been touting for years and years and years that these loans particularly the ones for this trust never reached the trust uh if they they were simply held by the servicers throughout the entire time and the and the servicers uh were the ones who were taking out the insurance policies in their own name as required um and were uh handling uh these things from day one having never placed them in the trust so as I started going through this insurance policy uh, there's a lot of interesting uh, lines in there it starts out by you know saying that um, the 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 policy covers all loans that uh, are projected to suffer any losses due to a default by the borrower so they would be uh, the insured uh, which was required to be the servicers in these cases um, we're the ones who are going to receive the payment and get paid off. But jumping ahead here a little bit is I mean, when you get down into some of the further language, I, I caught this um, uh, two things really uh, that are very important in talking about the credit bids and the, and the sales. Is One, the company, Magic, is spelling out that they have the control and they're going to dictate The handling of the credit bids and they're going to instruct the insured which is the servicer on on exactly what to do and what to bid and so on and so forth so essentially they're the wizard behind the curtain and they're going and they're gonna instruct them on what to do from every step of the way and uh, it even goes as far as uh, magic was controlling and approving and had all the say in modifications as well loan mods so (laughs) nowhere uh, is the borrower even have any knowledge probably specifically in this case that um, if they were to apply for a loan modification that the party that there was really calling the shots behind the scene was an insurance carrier and that insurance carrier here in this documentation says no modifications period so (laughs) so there's another uh, form of meddling But at the very end, in this this, uh, outline of terms, and there's there's just a a lot of things to digest here, they specifically state that none of these parties have any agency uh, connection with one another. So MAGIC and the servicer and none of these parties for the servicer working for them, um, agency connection. So that tells you that you have this separate entity um, hiding in the weeds, and and yet dictating all the shots when it comes to the sales it comes to loan mods, uh, so on and so forth. So it gets it gets real deep and we'll probably kind of step through a couple of these and I'll get some of your thoughts on that as an attorney. Um, but you've you've looked at this, right, uh, uh, Charles, some of the stuff I sent over. Oh,
1: absolutely. And, yeah. and one of the things that strikes me is in terms of the credit bidding. I mean, how procedurally. Are they able to get around the conventional credit bidding rules where the only party authorized to bring a credit bid is, again, you know, the so-called, the supposed, the alleged holder of the the legal interest, the party in interest attached to the original creditor, at least getting the whole legal interest as the so-called beneficiary from the original creditor, if they're not the original creditor. I'm wondering how they get around those rules when they come literally to the foreclosure table and say, yeah, we're authorized to, to issue a credit bid because just to tell the listeners real quickly, when you go to an auction sale, and again, this would be true whether you're in a judicial foreclosure state or a non judicial foreclosure state. When you go to the auction sale, if you're a third party purchaser, you basically have to pay what amounts to cash. Of course, it's not cash. It's a bunch of numbers and zeros in an account somewhere that's, you know, basically subject to being tendered as a wire transfer, typically. Uh, But on the other hand, if the the sale happens and there is no third-party purchaser buying the property, what happens legally is... The the sale is still completed. That's another thing that some listeners may not know. This is really important information. I mean, when your house goes to auction, you need to know as the borrower that, that if it actually goes to auction, regardless of who buys it or whether it quote-unquote goes back to the moving party, the one who directs the auction, whether that's a servicer who claims to have all the rights, of the note in the deed of trust, or whether it's a securitized trust, like, again, Deutsche Bank, Bank of New York Mellon, that type of situation. When that goes down, a credit bid is where, you know, they're hardly moving money at all. I mean, they're just representing that, yeah, we're good for it. They're literally buying on credit and you know, then the the property goes back to them, and then they become the official legal owner, cutting the borrower out, literally at the time of sale. So, so Bill, how do they how do they affect this? How do they get around those conventional rules?
2: Well, you get around those rules by just pure lack of disclosure and hiding everything. <laughs> I mean, I, I, I if if they were to disclose any of this stuff obviously they're going to have a lot of problems and and you know they're cutting corners and shirking uh the laws um you know repeatedly in these in these situations i mean not only have i, if I just mentioned that they're meddling in loan modifications and the sales and everything but it even talks in here about the company reserving the right to direct uh the servicers To institute uh, litigation and foreclosure uh, executing defaults and then actually filing foreclosure to complaints and that uh, magic is the one who's really pulling the strings and and most likely hiring the uh, the counsel to to handle the proceedings uh, it, it states in here very specifically that every step of the way, Magic is to be informed as to the progress in litigation. That the the pleadings and all the documents and everything uh, are to be turned over to them, uh, as they're to be kept abreast of of everything's going on. So they're they're controlling it all. And uh, this is again the first real insight that that we have to to see that here is a party who has no contractual connection to the homeowner and to the deed of trust or the mortgages or the security instruments and or the loan and the debt when it comes to modifying everything, who are literally controlling all the shots. And I don't think it's, it, it, it takes a, a legal scholar to understand that uh, th- they have some real problems with that when they're trying to come into a courtroom or they're trying to issue a credit bid or wherever saying that, they're the proper party, they're the creditor, so on and so forth. It's all its all completely uh, uh, bogus. Um, you know, it goes even further in this case where in finding out why this trust was terminated, there was a, um, an, an agreement, uh, an asset purchase agreement between the servicers on this thing years ago, which also details and spells out the fact that the Sasco trust never had anything to do or never had any possession or ownership or never acquired anything here. This was all done by the servicers and the parties from day one. And that's, uh, that's pretty much what we've been yelling and screaming and touting for years that, that these, these trusts are empty paper bags that never received anything. And it's these middlemen parties who were taking out these insurance policies and, and were doing all these deeds, and then they come in and hide and disguise themselves behind uh, the straw man uh, rental trustee on behalf of this these fictitious empty trusts.
1: Right. I mean, and the insurance payoff is one of the examples whereby – the institutional players who are bringing this all to bear and literally landing themselves on top of the homeowner, they're basically getting paid off they're being made whole and yet they continue even through taking these properties to auction, to to in effect get doubly paid triply paid i mean the Washington case that I know you know you're you're providing some snippets on right now i mean where is that case? procedurally is it is it is it already deep into a legal procedure and hearings or are there are there pending hear- hearings right now where is the case
2: yeah, the, unfortunately, it, it, it advanced uh, to a pretty late stage. But I think the argument that's being put forth now is obviously jurisdiction and standing that uh, this plaintiff never didn't even exist. Uh, not only was the trustee non-existent, but the the trust that it proclaimed to represent was terminated years before the filing of the complaint. And there's hard proof and evidence to show there, the loan was compla- paid off in full with zero losses years ahead of time. So I think if uh this is it gets in front of the the proper jurisdiction court appeals court wherever it's going at this stage and it's 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 pretty clear cut what just happened here and and you know it's the the the, the clients uh, when they came to me they said you know never once did the plaintiff provide a note in the case in fact they came into court in this complaint and said that the note had been lost or destroyed and they don't know where it is well I think I know where it is. <laughs> it was assigned over in the purchase agreement that I just referenced, and it was probably sent off uh, to Magic. Uh, and yet here, here they proceed and, and file a complaint. I mean, it's just it's it's beyond egregious.
1: Well, in in judicial foreclosure cases like the one that you're in right now, uh, would you say it's it's a standard of pleading? That you know, this is one of the differences I think is fundamental between non-judicial foreclosure cases like the ones I handle in California and the judicial foreclosure cases. That yeah, they exist in California too. It's just that very few are filed. There may be more filed in Washington, and yeah, as Bill said, Washington is primarily a non-judicial foreclosure state. But of course, litigation in general, burden of proof is a huge fundamental primary element going into the case, and the plaintiff always has the initial burden of proof, so what that means in the real world is in California, when the other side is getting so many cases shut down, not invariably, we are getting through on some of these cases, but there's still too many judges who are saying, yes, we agree, You, plaintiff, don't have standing. We're buying the institutional servicers argument. We're buying the institutional trust argument that you don't have standing. Therefore, they never even have to produce the note. They never even have to show the bona fides of how they came into possession, how they have control, why they're apparently either bogus assignments, they're backdated assignments, they're frontdated assignments, they're robo-signed assignments. I'm wondering, Bill, when you look at the judicial side, don't don't the the institutional players have to bring to the table right up front, don't they have to bring bona fides? Don't they have to bring the note? Don't they have to show they control this? Or how does that typical how does that typically play out in the judicial foreclosure arena?
2: Well yeah, I mean that's that's the very first part of standing is they have to come in and they have to go on the record stating it first and foremost the one thing that they universally ignore when it comes to the rules of procedure is their typical uh, corporate disclosure statements I mean in this particular case had they just complied with the basic rule which I think is typically 7.1 in in most cases but anyway it's the corporate disclosures if they would have come in as as required and said here 's who we are here's where we're incorporated here 's you know the 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 layout of of our identity and our existence uh it, it's basically bring in your birth certificate if corporations are people right and if they would just simply comply with that, well obviously they don't and they didn't in this case because it doesn't exist and they'd be they'd be caught dead right at the very beginning uh by filing this this um, ridiculous complaint on behalf of entities that no longer exist and have been terminated. So that is the the number one uh, position is you have to come in and state, especially in a foreclosure action, and show that you are the proper party uh, who either represents the investor or you're the holder of the of a note, and you're the party entitled to enforce it, and so on and so forth and you know again, here's a case where they don't even they don't even come in saying we're holder of a note because they're coming in saying there is no note uh we just we're just coming after the deed of trust and uh and that's pretty much uh trust us your honor uh, you know we own it, and there's there's virtually nothing else and so now I think they got their hands full because uh, of what I've uncovered here, and and I think you know this this is this is commonplace far too in far too many cases across the country they're getting away with this where where there's smoke there's fire if you've seen it here in in great detail I mean this is a roadmap textbook example I'm sure that's been multiplied you know I can't I can't even begin to imagine how many times in the in the last
1: ten years I mean do you do you have a sense Bill of of how many cases, I'm not necessarily talking about like anything other than maybe just total raw numbers or guesstimates. Do you have a sense whether MGIC is kind of like a little MERS where they're involved in some huge percentage of these cases, or is it something that's more unusual? I mean, what's your your sense of that?
2: Well, I would say NGIC is, is one of the bigger players in the field. Of, and, and the names that I have come across over the years, I would probably say that there's, uh, you know, they would definitely be in the top five of of the types of insurance providers who were doing the bulk of these types of agreements um, throughout that securitization period of the 2000s. Uh, so I think, you know, here you take a trust, and, I, and as I recall there was I think several thousand three four thousand loans at least um pledged to this particular trust and you know structured asset had done series for years and years and years and I'm sure that they were replicating the model over and over and over and because it was working and they were making a lot of money on it obviously so I can only imagine you know you've got you know tens of thousands of loans that just on these particular series through MGIC, uh, that if people have ever you know experienced a foreclosure or had been foreclosed by you know structured asset, uh, it's a, there's a pretty good chance that none of this was ever uh, disclosed and uh, of what was going on behind the scenes. And 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 again, um, this is kind of a rare situation to get a peek at this first level, but I hope this opens the door to you know more pointed and better discovery in cases moving forward because once you start to expose this it gives you better grounds to to go in and seek specific discovery on these issues because now you have a frame of reference and you can go right before the judge and say here's what I uncovered in a similar case and here's exactly what they're doing and here's exactly why I need to know the answers to these questions instead of just coming in and you know a lot of people for years were coming in and just throwing out hypotheticals uh, you know just not really conclusory statements not really understanding or knowing just sensing from what they've read or heard that these loans were insured they were paid off or whatever but there was no it's very difficult to come up with the hard clues and evidence to show that and here's a great case where now you know the more of this kind of stuff you get uh the, the stronger uh chances you have at getting a court's attention and and getting your foot further in the door to to force them to cough up this, uh, this information.
1: Sure. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, so, you know, w- let me, let me get your take on this. Do you think that the, the MGIC situation that you exposed, because you're, you're dealing with things at a high level of analysis, let's say a borrower, or, just hires you know the kind of routine loan you know auditing service that sometimes you know their financial issues they can't afford to hire somebody you know at a higher level of particularity like you will this show up in that kind of garden variety loan analysis or do you have to get down into the loan level files or what's your take on that
2: well it's no i don't i for the most part I don't think you're you're gonna see uh this kind of information come up very often now it's not that uh i I know a lot of the competition um they they go out and gather up a lot of data and just throw it and cobble it together and throw it back, but they don't do a whole lot of real deep uh digging on this stuff now uh you know maybe I'm tooting my own horn a little bit, but you know i i I look at these cases even though they're very similar um in facts for you know the, the, the fact patterns are very similar and I've been dealing with it for years and years and years. I still treat it like Forrest Gump would say, there's still like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. And unless you okay. keep trying, yeah. Unless you keep trying and unless you keep digging, uh, I mean, nuggets continuously come up and pop up such as this. And, and it just,
1: well, that's, you, 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 you got to dot all your I don't eyes. need, I don't need to interrupt yeah. you, but so we're coming down to the end of the show now. And I, Thank you again, Bill, for being on today. Neil will be back next week, and we will continue the fight. At the time.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks much, Charles. It's a great, great having
1: uh, being with you again. Absolutely, absolutely, Bill. And we'll be we'll be together again.
0: Thanks for listening to our broadcast. We hope that you tell your friends about us and let them know that there is hope and help in this financial crisis. Tune in every week to The Neil Garfield Show for free information and advice and visit our blog daily at The Living Lies Blog. We provide support services, the latest strategies, analysis, expert consultations, testimony, and declarations to use in your battle against the largest economic crime in human history. For information concerning Neil, the team at Living Lies, or the law firm, go to www livinglives.wordpress.com or call 520-405-1688 The opinions expressed on this broadcast are those of the host and should not be attributed to any other person or entity.